Please take your Bible and turn with me to the fourth chapter of Luke. The fourth chapter of Luke. We have seen Jesus' temptation in the wilderness and His absolute conquering of Satan. We've seen the defense of Christ and today we see the offense of Christ. If you are able, I would ask for you to stand with me for the reading of the Word this morning. And I think you'll see why such a a response and an act is fitting. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14 to the 30th verse, we read, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about Him went out through all the surrounding country. And He taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And He came to Nazareth, where He had been brought up, and as was His custom, He went to the synagogue, and on the Sabbath day, and He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to Him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on Him. He began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his own hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, All in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Jesus comes out of the wilderness victorious, having conquered Satan's temptation, those threefold temptations. And in doing so, he comes out a greater Adam, a greater Israel, perfectly faithful to his father's will and purposes. He has been perfectly victorious in his defense to begin his ministry. And now he goes in the offense of his proclamation. We're told that he comes out of the wilderness led by the power of the Spirit of God. And he begins to preach and heal throughout all of the region of Galilee. And there are people who are amazed by what they are hearing and seeing. It says they glorified Him. They glorified Him for what they heard and saw as He preached by the power of the Spirit. My friends, I want you to know that Jesus, in His humanity, teaches us how true humanity ought to live. He came as a human not only to be a fitting sacrifice and substitute for us, but to provide for us also an example of how we are to live. He came not only to do what we could not do, but to show us what we should do. 
And His humanity was lived by the power of the Spirit. Yes, He was fully divine. Yes, He was fully God in every way. And yet He chose in His humanity to live by the power of the Spirit of God. Never emptying Himself, never losing any of His divinity, but simply living in such a way to give an example of how true humanity should live. By the power of the Spirit of God. Luke 4 is all about demonstrating to us how we as humans should live. We are to rest in the provision of God, surrender to the will of God, hold fast to the Word of God, and live by the power of the Spirit of God. And the only difference that we have compared to what Christ does in His humanity is that we trust in His person and work for the basis of our salvation. So we rest in the work of the Son of God. That is the addition we have. We we live upon His merits and His work and by His example. Now we're told that He's being glorified by all who see, behold, His teaching, His works. And one of the things that Luke is wanting to do throughout his, his, his teaching here is to show the contrast that Jesus' message brings. Some places it, it brings glory and joy. In others it brings rejection and anger and wrath. There's a reason for that. We'll talk about that a little later. What's fascinating is this ministry that he does in the region of Galilee before coming to Nazareth. In Matthew and Mark's account, they give it a whole lot of detail. I mean, you don't get to this point in uh, Mark's account until the 6th chapter. In Matthew, not until the 13th chapter. So they give a whole lot of detail about this ministry that Jesus does in Galilee before coming to Nazareth. But Luke doesn't care to. Luke just summarizes it all. He preached and told a whole lot of things that people glorified him in the region. And that's what Luke gives us. Why? It's because does Luke not find these things important? No. It's because Luke, like all of the gospel writers, are writing with a very specific purpose. They have a purpose in why they are writing and including the details that they are. It's not because they think any are less important. But it's because by the Holy Spirit, as they are led, they are called to give attention to very specific details that the readers might see something very important. Luke, unlike Matthew and Mark, desires to focus the beginning of Jesus' ministry here at his hometown in Nazareth. This is where he wants the preaching ministry of Jesus to be highlighted as beginning. But why? Why does Luke want to start here? It's because in this sermon at his hometown... In the response there, in the things that Jesus says, Luke highlights some very important things that bring to pass very central themes to his gospel. In this message to his hometown, a few things happen. First, we get the clear truth of Jesus' identity. He is the anointed one. He is God's anointed son. He is the Messiah. We get a clear picture of His ministry. What has He come to do? We get a clear picture that His mission is not just for Israel. It's for the world. We get a clear picture that Jesus cares for the poor, the oppressed, and the needy. And if you see yourself as anything less, you've got no part in Jesus. We see for the fact that Luke wants to make clear that it is impossible to be neutral towards the message of Jesus. There is no neutrality regarding Christ. You're either for Him or against Him. And he wishes to make clear the triumph of God's sovereign purposes over men's vain preferences. That's what this whole message at Nazareth is all about. These are the central themes of Luke. And that's why he highlights this Ministry to start it off. He does all of this that the reader may be certain of the truth that they have been taught about Christ. And what's the main truth that Luke wants to give us with this hometown message of Jesus? Here's the main point this morning. 
Jesus the Christ has come to bring the promised eternal jubilee for all peoples who will believe upon Him. And in spite of human rejection and rebellion, He will be unstoppable in doing so. That's what this message is all about this morning. This is the central thrust of this hometown ministry of Christ. So with that, let's look at three realities that we get, we see from these different parts of the ministry. And the first thing that we see this morning in the text is where Jesus reveals His identity and the purpose of His calling. We see this in verse 16 through 22. Here we we begin by reading how He came to Nazareth where He had been brought up. Now, uh, many of you may be from small towns. I, I know I am. And if you travel throughout the, the lower 48 and travel elsewhere, even here, and you go through towns, oftentimes you see either entering into the town or at different parts of the city, usually there are murals for hometown heroes. I mean, this is the home of so-and-so. You go to any local high school, there's the trophy case, right? And it's got all the hometown quarterbacks and all the great guys who were there and ladies who broke school records. And these are the hometown heroes. Many places they'll have pictures of the, the veterans that served in that community or from that community. These are our hometown heroes. Hometowns often celebrate the, the heroes, those who've gone out from them and done great things within the world. I, if there had ever been such a thing as the Nazareth News, I, I, I can imagine that the headline would have read, Local Carpenter Turned Rabbi Comes Home to Preach. Jesus, who has done miraculous things, is coming home. And people are beginning to buzz. No doubt the excitement of the region of Galilee, not a very large, small, uh, not a very large area, has penetrated the small town of Nazareth of hearing about Jesus and what He is doing. Amazing things, amazing stories of, of incredible sermons and preaching. Incredible healings that are taking place that they're hearing about. And it has created a buzz in Nazareth. And yet... I can also imagine there being some undertones of some interesting things that we're hearing being taught about what he's saying. I heard someone say that he was claiming to be the Messiah. No, not not Jesus. No, I'm sure they got that wrong. Not the not the car, not Joseph's son. Some people are saying he's making messianic claims. That, that, that can't be him. Not the one who came over with Joseph to help us fix the table. Not the one who brought bread over with Mary. Not him. Surely, he's just like John the Baptist. He's coming as a forerunner of the Messiah. He's coming to tell us and prepare us for the real Messiah. That, that's probably what he's going to come and preach. But we're so excited. And God's validating His message with miracles and signs. I can't wait to see what God has done with Jesus. The one who grew up with us. As you know from small towns, news, or should I say gossip, travels quickly. It doesn't take very long for buzz to start to create Perhaps as he arrived, he went and visited his mother's home. Perhaps he went and visited James and Jude, who were resentful towards him for all of the fame their big brother was getting. Who does this guy think he is? And that's how they felt. You see that from the scriptures. I love what the text says. It says that we are told that as the Sabbath came... He went to the synagogue as was his custom. Jesus went to the synagogue. He went to the worship service as was his custom. Meaning, this is where he always was. Jesus was always in the right place on the right day. He was in worship. Now, as I began to think about that, that that kind of made me chuckle a bit. 
How many bad sermons did Jesus have to listen to? How often did the preacher miss the mark? How often did he go too long? How often did those singing the psalms next to him sing off key? How many times did he watch those who attend synagogue act in complete hot hypocrisy that week later on? And yet it never kept him from coming. It never kept him from being in the place of worship. He never used it. The Lord of glory never used any of that. The frailty and follies of worship with people. He never used any of it not as an excuse not to be there. Why? Because he came out of both duty and delight for his father. He came out of duty to his father's will and delight in his father's worship. Because here's the reality, brothers and sisters. I'm not saying this wasn't the case for Jesus because he always had delight. Because he never missed the mark. He never had sin that pulled him away. But here's the truth for you. There will be times you don't feel delight. And you're going to struggle wanting to be here. And you do it anyway. Why? Because it's, it's the God's command. Do not neglect the gathering of the saints. Hebrews 12. This is where you should be. And so if delight isn't there, get here for duty's sake. Because I promise when you come here for duty, delight will come. It will come. Don't be here to be a spectator. Don't be here for a social club. Don't sing because you're worried about what other people might say. Don't care about how long the preacher's going. You be here because you delight in the fact that God's being worshipped. Because there's no other place I need to be than here. And brothers and sisters, it is still Christ's custom to be here in our midst in worship. He's still here at this very moment. As is his custom. He is everywhere where his people are gathered. In his name. He is always gathered when we. He is always here when we are gathered. And so you should be as well. Why? Because it's precisely in the corporate gathering of the saints. That Christ most clearly uses as the platform. To reveal his identity and purposes to his people. It's always in the context of corporate gatherings. Yes, there are individual moments where God brings revelation to individuals through His Word to them personally. I think of the Ethiopian eunuch. right? God comes to him directly through the preaching of the Word in Philip. We see Saul of Tarsus, an individual moment. But apart from those very rare moments, where is the context that God sees most clearly fit to bring revelation of who His Son is? It's in the gathering of people. When, when, when Peter comes to Cornelius' house, where does he come? To a people, a bunch of Gentiles gathered in the home. Where did the primary aspect of preaching take place? In the synagogues. He preached in the synagogues around Galilee. Galilee. He preached in the synagogue in Nazareth. Luke 4 will close with Jesus doing what? Going out and preaching in the synagogues. The, the place where God desires most to reveal the person and purpose of His Son is in the corporate gathering of believers. That's why you got to be here. Because you're missing something glorious about Jesus when you're not here. And without the saints, you're missing something glorious about Jesus because you're missing a part and an extension of His body. So don't tell me you can love the head and hate his body. So what when the preacher's too long-winded? So what when he misses the mark? So much when the music seems to be a little off-kilter. So much when you talk about how people live in hypocrisy. Well, so do you. Be here. For if it was the Lord's custom, how much more should it be ours? Now we're told that as he enters into the service... We're told that he had been given the task, whether he was given the task by the local rabbi, whether he asked to be able to to teach that day, we're not fully sure. But nevertheless, he is given the task of reading and expounding on the Word of God that day. 
And we're told that he comes and he stands to read, which was an act of the honor of God's word. They would stand to read Torah, to read the word, to read the Tanakh, the scriptures, whatever they chose to read for that day. They would stand in reading in honor of it. And we are told of all the places that Jesus could have gone uh, in the, the scroll of Isaiah that he receives, whether he asked to read from Isaiah, whether that was just merely the, the, the choice of the scroll that was going to be read that day. Of all the places Jesus could go in Isaiah, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 53, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 58, he chooses to preach Isaiah 61, 1 through 2. I love this text. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What a text. And after he reads, he sits down. Why? Was he done? No. This is where this was the position of teaching in the ancient world. We have kind of changed that. We sit up here and we stand and we give lectures from a pulpit. But that was not how it was done in the ancient world. Teachers would sit to teach. It was called the professorial chair, the place of authority, when they would sit down and all of their students would sit at their feet and hear this authoritative teaching. It was from the chair. It's why in universities today, the subject matter expert in every department is called the department chair. They're seen as the expert in their field, in their study. There's a place of authority. So he sits to teach. He would stand to read in honor of God and he would sit to teach. And so now he begins to teach. Now surely, what what Luke records here is only a snippet of the message. He probably said many other things that we we don't receive in the word and, and it doesn't ultimately matter because ultimately Luke wants to highlight one singular phrase of Jesus's opening exhortation from Isaiah 61. And this is what he says. Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's the highlight. That's the so what. That's the now what. Jesus says, that is here in me. He wants to make very clear to every onlooker there that what Isaiah 61 foretold is happening right now. And so we should probably... Ask the question then, what in the world is Isaiah 61 talking about? And the answer is, it's talking about the Messianic Jubilee year. Which is the year of the Lord's favor, which is referred to in Isaiah 61. That would be ushered in when the Messiah came, the anointed one of God came. He would usher in this Jubilee year. He will come, we are told, to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recover the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This was all jubilee. You see, in the Old Covenant, God had established within His law a notion which was called the jubilee year. And every 50th year, jubilee was celebrated. This was a time when all debts were paid in full. By paid in full, I mean forgiven. It's forgiven. Whatever debt you have, forgiven. Every slave that was in chains is set free. Every aspect of bondage or captivity is absolutely liberated. Full, complete freedom has been brought forth in the Jubilee year. And it was something that for the average Israelite, they would celebrate once in their life. If they were lucky to make it to 50. Once in a generation, would someone ultimately usually get to celebrate Jubilee. Debt removed. Slavery destroyed. Bondage broken. That's what Jubilee was all about. 
Bondage replaced with freedom. Mourning replaced with joy. Darkness replaced with light. This is what Jubilee is all about. And Jesus says, it's come in me. It's come in me. And what makes this so important is where Jesus is giving the message. You see, when Jubilee came, it required every person to return to their hometown to celebrate it. You see this in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 10. We see the, the, Moses writes, And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. That, that line there, by the way, is written on the liberty bell. It shall be a jubilee for you. When each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. So when Jubilee came, the first way to celebrate it was you went to your hometown to announce Jubilee. To go there to reconcile all relationships, to ensure any debt that was there was fully removed. You would go to your hometown to announce Jubilee, to celebrate Jubilee. Now we see why Luke wants to start the message here. Because for Luke... This is what the good news is all about. Jubilees come. Liberty has come. Freedom has come in Christ. This is what Luke wants to get at at the heart of his gospel. The gospel is liberty is found in Christ. Freedom is found in Christ. Debt completely covered in Christ. Forgiveness in Christ. Reconciliation in Christ. Jubilee has come in Jesus. This is the good news that Luke wants to get at. And it has to begin at Nazareth. How wonderful, how incredible. What good news for the poor in spirit, for those in bondage and oppressed, that Jubilee has come. But Jesus does something very interesting here. Because Jesus makes very clear a very interesting and important aspect regarding his ministry in where he chooses to stop reading. Because if you actually go and look at Isaiah 61, 1 through 2, Jesus purposely cuts off his reading. He doesn't finish the verse. Let's see why that is. Let's look at Isaiah 61, 1 through 2. So we see all of these things, right? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now that's where Jesus stops. But look at what Isaiah 61, 2 continues. And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Notice, Jesus chose to purposely stop his reading before he read, and the day of vengeance. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, stop and sit down and read. Today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Why did he stop? It's because the day of vengeance hadn't come yet. The day of vengeance is still to come. Jesus was making clear in this moment that his ministry was going to actually be marked by two advents. One where he came to offer jubilee and liberty. And another when he would come to bring vengeance. This would not happen at the same time. You see, so many people had believed that Jesus, that the Jubilee of the Messiah would only come by bringing vengeance on the nation. That's what the Israel expected. We're going to receive Jubilee because He's going to crush everyone else. But what they didn't realize is that the Jubilee that Jesus would came, would not, He would not bring Jubilee through vengeance. He would bring Jubilee from vengeance. And that, that jubilee would not just be for ethnic Israel. But it would be made for all peoples. A people from every tribe, tongue, and nation would partake in this jubilee year. A year which was not marked every 50th. But a jubilee which is available every single day to the poor, to the oppressed, to the captive. A jubilee that remains as long as Jesus is Lord. Brothers and sisters, what this means for us is that the Jubilee year is still going. 
And that when the poor are saved and the captives are set free and the chains of oppression are broken by the Messiah, Messiah, all of this is still very present, very real, and you're a part of it. It is the time of Jubilee. It is the year of the Lord's favor. Paul gets to the heart of this when he quotes Isaiah 49 in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. Paul says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I've helped you. That's uh, Isaiah 49. Behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. That's the year of the Lord's favor. Favorable time? What's Paul saying? It's the Jubilee. It's the year of salvation. That's right now, Corinth. That's right now, church. Jesus has brought jubilee. And that jubilee will be culminated when? With vengeance. When the day of the Lord comes. When Christ returns again. But right now, it's not the day of vengeance. Right now, it's the day of salvation. It's the day of jubilee where debt can be forgiven, slave can be free, bondage can be broken, good news proclaimed. That's available to you, Christian. That's what you're a part of. That's what you celebrate about. This was a year of celebration and we grow cold and stoic about it. There's no praise in your heart that you've been set free. There's no absolute weeping and moving of your flesh and your soul to be transformed by the reality that you were done for, that you were enslaved, that you were in Egypt as far as you ever could be. That only thing that you could build was brick and mortar of your own death and tomb and destruction. And Jesus came and he set you free. That's what you belong to. How are you not moved? How do you come so stone-faced to worship? How do you just beg to crawl out of this place? Because Blake wouldn't shut up. He has come to set captives free. He has come to break every chain. And it's right now. And you get to be a part of it. Luke says that everyone marveled at the gracious words that came from his mouth. That's going to change in a bit. Oh, what? who has ever spoken more gracious words than Jesus? The one who should have brought vengeance. The one who could have brought vengeance and he would have been perfect in doing so. The truth of the matter is, and what his hometown needed to hear is, had he brought vengeance, no one would have been left standing. We're all guilty. We all deserve vengeance. And yet he brought grace. He brought grace, incredible grace, unimaginable grace, unstoppable. He brought grace. Vengeance will come. But for now, it's time for liberation. Now it's time for freedom. Now is the day of salvation. Jesus has already shaken things up. Because the expectation would be that Jubilee would only come when the Messiah came with vengeance. He's going to destroy Rome. He's going to destroy the Gentiles. And then we'll be free. Jesus turns that on on its head. And he starts shaking things up. See, this this is the part that bothers me here. As it says at the beginning of the sermon, they marveled at his words. They saw, oh, what gracious words. Until he really presses it home here in a second. And this is the great concern that I have. And so how often we leave saying, what wonderful words of the preacher. How wonderful the words of the Bible. Man, it's so good to know that stuff. It's so good to to hear these things. Now I got some some fuel to go against my atheist friends and all these things. We marvel at words. We're moved by oration. But your life isn't changed at all. You don't mind the gracious words of Jesus, but you aren't sure hate the convicting ones. He has come to bring salvation for all peoples. And He will destroy our expectations and preferences and bringing it about. Now is the day of salvation. Jesus says in John 12, verse 47 through 48, If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He's talking about His first advent. Jubilee. But verse 48... 
The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I've spoken will judge him on the last day. So, so you see the two advents right there in John 12. Right now, I don't judge. I've come to bring salvation. But you better believe these very words that I speak will be their judge on that day when I come in vengeance. Before moving on, I want to talk about two extremes when it comes to interpreting this Isaiah 61 passage of Jubilee. This passage of Christ preaching, proclaiming good news to the poor, liberty to the captives. There are two extremes that we must be warned against. The first is to limit Jesus' proclamation to physical and social categories. It's to limit it. It's to say, we're just supposed to take care of social needs. That's it. Right? We've got to go and take care of people and social needs and things like that. And I want to make very clear that if you go into the world to try to provide needs divorced from the gospel, it is the greatest act of spiritual malpractice you'll ever commit. Because there will be a whole lot of poor people you gave cups of cold water to to hell that will hate you. Because you gave them water without Christ. It is the greatest act of spiritual malpractice in the world to try to take care of needs divorced from the gospel. Because the greatest spiritual poverty, the greatest poverty is spiritual. I think of the warning to the church of Laodicea in Revelation 3. Outwardly you are rich, but you are poor, wretched, pitiable, the Lord says. That's a whole lot of people in America who are rich as could be and they are spiritually poor as ever. They are impoverished. They are like fat little Zacchaeus. Poverished, broken, dead. But Jesus can change it. And we have to pray it. And our hearts are to be outwardly going after those who are rich, pitiable, and poor in every way. With the gospel of Jesus Christ. The greatest slavery is spiritual. The greatest oppression is spiritual. This is why our greatest efforts must always be directed towards proclaiming the salvation of Christ to dying souls. That's the first extreme, to limit this to merely physical and social categories. But there's another extreme. And that's to do the opposite of what I just said. And that is to do nothing. To never turn a single eye to those who are under the weight of a fallen world. The other extreme is to have no compassion and take no action towards those who are poverty stricken and hungry, to the widow and the orphan, to those who are being tortured and exploited, to those who are being murdered in their mother's womb or on a hospital bed for old age, those who are oppressed and enslaved by human traffickers and human power brokers. It's to not bat an eye towards those either. That's the other extreme. To simply limit this to spiritual realities and not at all do anything to turn your eye to those who are really hurting by a fallen world. The reason that must be avoided is because Jesus in this text actually adds a little part in there. And He adds it from Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58 verse 6 when He talks about giving liberty to the oppressed. Now, what's Isaiah 58 all about? Isaiah 58 is a judgment against Israel for not taking any heart or any care for those physically suffering. Isaiah 58 is God telling them to stop with their fast days, to stop with their worship, because they have no care for the world. They have no heart for the needy, no heart for the downcast. He says, stop fasting to me, because you don't care for anybody. There is injustice in the land. There is people who are being tortured and wicked. Slaves all over the place. So don't bring your worship to me when you don't care at all about a dying and hurting world. That's what Isaiah 58. So that's why God, I know Jesus doesn't want us to just turn our eye to physical needs. Proverbs 22, verse 22 through 23, 23 says this. Do not rob the poor because he is poor. Or crush the afflicted at the gate. For the Lord will plead their cause and rob the life of those who rob them. Don't you dare tell me that God doesn't care about physical needs. Social ills and strifes and terrors. We must be a church who does not make either of these mistakes. 
who does not give the cup without the gospel, but gives the gospel and never thinks about the cup. Who can look at suffering people and not be moved to compassion and think nothing of them while sitting idly in the comfort of our salvation and our communities and never think once about the stricken of the world. If that's you, I don't know who you're following because it's not Jesus. We should be relentless in proclaiming the chain-breaking, soul-freeing, sin-liberating, death-defeating message of the gospel of Jesus to every dying soul we come across. And we should be zealous in our compassion for those who are suffering under the wicked realities of this present age. Christ did both. And as His followers and His body, we continue by His power and His Spirit to do both. To declare and live out the year of the Lord's favor. Now, Jesus' hometown marvels so far. They're excited. This is great stuff. But soon, the little birds of doubt begin to swoop in to pick up the seeds which have been sown. Wait. Isn't this Joseph's son? He's a nobody. How can that poor carpenter bring Jubilee? How's he going to get rid of Roman oppression? Where's his army? I need to see more signs before I jump on this Jesus bandwagon. And so Jesus now, secondly, turns the tables on his listeners' expectations. We see this in verse 23 through 27. And he begins with this little interesting note. He says, and he said to them, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum do here in your hometown as well. What Jesus is getting at here is more than merely subverting their wishes to see him validate what he's saying with signs. That's part of it, but not all of it. The second line helps us get at what Jesus is saying here. When he says, you'll say, physician, heal yourself. What you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown. You see, they are upset and resentful that Jesus has not prioritized His ministry first and foremost to them. We're your hometown. You're supposed to take care of us first. They expected Him to do different things differently. And He has not acted in accordance with their desires. Why has Capernaum been the recipient of all your teaching and healing? Why are you healing blind and the deaf there but you just come and teach you? What's going on, Jesus? Aren't we supposed to be first? We were here all your life. I helped you out. I helped bind that time that you, you hurt your leg. And, and I helped to bind that wound. And I was there for you. And, and I brought some, some extra bread over to Mary and Joseph when you guys were hurting for that season. Why didn't you come and prioritize us? We did so much for you and your family, Jesus. Why were we not first? Where have you been? You're the Messiah now? My loved one just died. The friend you went to school with is passed away. Where were you then? Where have you been, Jesus? Why have we not been prioritized? We've been so much a part of your life. Why should, we should be a given preference. You should have taken care of your family first. You should put Nazareth on the map. We should be made glorious by you. Where are the signs and the miracles? Jesus, for your own hometown. I was so convicted in this point of my study. Because I heard so much of Nazareth in me. Don't you know how much I've done for you, Jesus? Don't you know how hard I've worked in this ministry? Don't you know how much I've sacrificed for my family? Isn't it supposed to go this way? Aren't there supposed to be more people here? Shouldn't we already have these things in place at Hillside? Shouldn't these things be going? Shouldn't I be not struggling with these old same issues in my life? Where are you, God? Shouldn't you show up, Jesus? Haven't I done enough? Sound just like Nazareth. Heal yourself, physician. Begin here. 
Jesus wants to make really clear He will not answer to that kind of demanding heart. When you're saying, oh, shit, more, more people should be doing what I want and I'm sick of what this is happening and shouldn't ministry be working this way because seminary told me all of these ideas and thoughts about how church should go and it's been totally turned on its head by Jesus. It's totally different. Everything I thought ministry was going to be in my first year was turned on its head. Everything I thought would be in year three turned on its head. Everything I thought it would be year five turned on its head. What's going on, Jesus? I thought this was my expectation. This is what it's supposed to be, right? I see other people happening. I see you moving over there and moving here. Why not here? So much of Nazareth in our hearts. I saw you heal so-and-so's family. My child's dying. I see you save so-and-so's marriage and mine's falling apart. I'm praying, Jesus, what's going on? It's a demanding heart which says, Jesus must prioritize me. And He must perform signs for me in order for me to submit to His teaching and to follow Him. He's got to do it on my terms. And I better, you better believe He won't deal with that. Jesus does not give in to the presumptions and demands of men because God is in debt to no one. And brothers and sisters, I want you to know today, every time God has broken my expectations, it's always been for something better. I'm so glad He crushed my expectations for Hillside because it's been so much better. Pastoral ministry is so much better than anything I ever expected. I'm so glad he crushed them. Because he won't do it your way. And his way is better. But he's got to be enough. That's the point here. For his hometown, he wasn't enough. His word wasn't enough. So when Matthew and Mark tells us that Jesus was not able to do many miracles in Nazareth, it wasn't because he was rendered unable because of their their faithlessness. He could still do it. We're even told that he still healed people. No. He didn't do many works because he will not bow to the demands of men. He refused to bow to the vain promises of Satan in the wilderness and he will not bow to the vain preferences of men at Nazareth. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Why? Because familiarity breeds contempt. You see this with your own children. Kids will often listen to strangers who direct them in a truth while hating you for saying the exact same words. Part of it, right? That's part of it. Familiarity breeds contempt. I saw you. I know you. That comfort can breed complacency. Complacency breeds contempt. People love their hometown heroes who go and put their little city on the map. But they despise hometown prophets who call them out on their iniquity. They love hometown heroes who put them on the map. They hate hometown prophets who put their sin on the map. Jesus was making clear, I'm no hometown hero. But I'm a universal one. I'm not Nazareth's hero. I'm heaven's hero. The people of Nazareth needed to understand God is no respecter of persons. For God is free in His sovereignty to give justice to whom He pleases and mercy to whom He pleases. And he put, and no one can put God in debt. No one can say, God, you, I deserve better. You owe me more. You owe me something. No one puts God in debt. And that's at the heart of the two examples Jesus now appeals to. One from Elijah, the other from Elisha. Both who are prophets, what? Not accepted in their hometowns. Rejected by Israel. 
And because of their rejection, Israel was under judgment. And God in His sovereign free purposes chose to withhold blessing from unbelieving Israel and give blessing to believing Gentiles. The widow of Zarephath and Naaman the leper, who fascinatingly was actually the general of an enemy army. That shows you the freeness of God's mercy. Whoever He chooses. Even an enemy of of His people's army. The leader of it. Naaman the leper. You see, while Israel rejected God's prophets, those Gentiles had had it placed upon their hearts to seek them out with all diligence and faith. Both the widow and Naaman had to believe before they could experience the miracle. You've got to believe the Word before you'll ever experience the miracle. And that's the message Jesus wanted to give to Nazareth. You will never see a work of Christ if you do not believe the Word of Christ. You're not going to see any work if you won't believe the Word. If this Word is not sufficient to you, His work will be absent from you. So when you're saying, well, i got to see it, God. Is this not enough? Because if you won't believe it here, you'll never see it anywhere else. If His Word is not sufficient to you, His work will be absent from you. But not only this, Jesus wants to also make clear that He is not bound to the preferences of men. He's not bound to Israel. I'll bless whoever I want to bless. I'll bless to whomever I choose to bless, including Gentiles. I love what he says about Naaman the leper because he says Naaman the leper was not, he didn't say anything about being healed. He said he was cleansed. Now, a leper could be healed, but a Gentile couldn't be cleansed. And the Lord says, yes, he was. Why? Because God in his grace cleansed Naaman on the basis of his faith. He was cleansed. And he didn't have to become a Jewish proselyte. By grace through faith, Naaman was cleansed, not just healed. And that was so much more important than just healing. If he would have just said Naaman the leper was healed, no one would have had a problem. But when he said he was cleansed, that's an issue. Because Naaman never became a proselyte. He was cleansed by faith. To the sovereign grace and mercy of God who can freely bestow it to whomever he so pleases. In the economy of God's sovereign purposes, 100% of people who will receive judgment deserved it. And 100% of the people who received grace didn't. In the economy of God's purposes, 100% of people who received his judgment deserved it. And 100% of people who received grace did it. You didn't deserve it. So that's grace. You deserve judgment. And you got grace. Oh, the goodness of God. These Gentiles were blessed because of Israel's rejection. And in the new covenant, that would be true also. This is the heart of what Paul teaches in Romans 11. We're not going to go there today. But when Paul talks about how through Israel's rejection of the Messiah, blessing has come to the Gentiles. Right? That is not saying that there weren't Jews that came to salvation. There's plenty of Jews that came to salvation. That's the whole first eight chapters of Acts. They came to salvation. But there was a partial hardening, not a temporal one, a partial one. Meaning that a portion of Israel was hardened. Why? Because through that hardening, God used that rejection to spread the gospel out further. You see that with the stoning of Stephen. When when Stephen is stoned by his kinsmen, what happened? It said that there was a great persecution, Acts chapter 8, that rose up in Israel and it spread the gospel from Jerusalem into Judea, Samaria, and to other other parts. What man meant for evil, God meant for good. And that can only happen with a sovereign God. If you don't have a God who's in control of all of it, if He is merely fickle and having to deal with the the plans of men, not only is He not God, man is. But He is not. God is sovereign. And all things, even the rejection of men, are a part of His sovereign purposes to advance His plan and mission and gospel to all peoples. And that's beginning with Nazareth. Jesus has turned the table on their expectations. He's crushed their presumptions. And now we see what comes of it. 
he is rejected by his own. Verse 28 through 30. Bringing this to a close. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of town, and they brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they should throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. What a turn of events. This wonderful homecoming has now turned murderous. The beloved son of Nazareth, now shouted down as a false prophet, led outside the walls of where he grew up to be cast down and stoned off of a cliff. This makes very clear there is no such thing as indifference to the message of Jesus. You must respond. And there's only two responses that you can give to the message of Jesus. Repentance or rejection. You can either turn towards Christ or turn against Him. There is no middle ground. There is no fence sitting because you can't sit on a sword. It divides all humanity in two. You're either for Him or against Him. You've either turned in repentance or turned in rejection. And that's the only responses we see regarding Jesus' ministry in Luke 4. People glorified Him and received Him or they rejected Him and ran Him off. Sought to kill Him. Why were they so angry? It's because Jesus had crushed every means of their self-sufficiency. Any hope or status they thought they might have as fellow Nazarenes, crushed. Any specific special status they thought they would have as His hometown people, crushed. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. No one stands higher than the rest. More than importantly, they despise the thought that Gentiles might be blessed by the Messiah. He's supposed to crush them, not save them. He's supposed to bring them vengeance, not jubilee. Jesus says, I will give mercy to whom I give mercy. And justice to who I give justice. My friends, they were so angry. These Gentiles don't deserve it. We do. Who does this Jesus think he's talking to? And who does he think he is? That's at the heart of Nazareth. Jesus had come for the poor, the oppressed, the truly captive. And they failed to see that's precisely who they were. And rather than receiving it and casting themselves on Him as an all-sufficient Savior, they sought to cast Him out and kill Him. But His time had not yet come. And we are told in some miraculous way He literally walked right through them. Why? Because His time had not yet come. He's unstoppable. And even in the end, when He would be rejected once more, when He was killed by His kinsmen at the cross, it was only because He rendered up His life to do so. Because His time had come. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down, Jesus says. The beginning and end of His ministry, Luke wants to make clear, will be marked by a rejection of His kinsmen. He is the stone rejected by the builders in order that you and I could be built into the temple. This hometown visit is merely a foreshadow of the cross. And the reality of it is, is when he walked away from Nazareth, as far as we know from Scripture, he never came back. And let this be the greatest warning of all. If you continue to reject Christ today, do not be sure you'll ever get the chance to receive Him again. If you walk out of this building in rejection, do not believe you'll ever get a chance to receive Him again because you may not. Tomorrow is not promised. Today is the day of salvation. So come ye weary, heavy, laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you'll never come at all. You won't be better. You will always be poor and needy and oppressed apart from Jesus. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time to repent and believe and to, free the, and to feel the liberating freedom that comes for every soul that He sets His saving grace upon and who come to Him by faith. For all who come to Him, He will never cast out. And when you trust in His Word, all of it points to Him and you will see power and might and glory in ways that are unthinkable. You will know jubilee. 
and what a joy it is. As we close now, I just want to put three questions upon your heart today as we bring our worship to a time of reflection. These are the questions that I would have you take from this time of our our study this morning. One, have you become complacent in your familiarity with Jesus? Have you just heard the messages over and over again? Have you been raised in church since you were little? Have you heard the stories, the glories of the gospel? And you've just become familiar. And it doesn't move you anymore. It doesn't bring you to tears. It doesn't change you. It doesn't shake you up. You don't yearn for more. You don't yearn to be hungry. You just come and join the routine. And when the routine gets a little off, you get angry. Because it's inflicted and messed up your schedule. Don't ever become familiar with the holy God. You should live in a reverential fear and awe of the Almighty. That you may not grow complacent and cold towards the fact that the Lord of the universe took upon flesh and died for sinners like you and me that we might know Jubilee. Have you grown too familiar with Christ? Pray that He will shake it off and stir in you a new zeal. Secondly, How do you respond when God turns the tables on your expectations? Do you walk around sulking, grumbling, resentful, mad? Do you feel it impact your worship? Do you say, you know what, I I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to do this ministry. It's not the way I thought it was going to be. I'm not going to care for those people. They don't like me very much. I'm going to stop going out and and doing this stuff because it doesn't seem to be working. I'm going to stop loving these people because they don't seem to be loving me the right way. I'm going to stop coming to worship because there's a whole bunch of hypocrites there. Go look in the mirror, brothers and sisters. What do you do when God crushes your expectations? The answer should be worship. Because they're always better. His ways are always better. And lastly, is Christ's mission our mission? Is it our mission, Hillside Baptist Church? Are we on fire to go proclaim liberty to captives? Are we on fire to care for the needs of the world? Are we going out to proclaim the chain-breaking message of the gospel to every soul we come across? What are we doing to impact the wickedness of the world? What are we doing to to absolutely make abortion not even an option? Because we have adopted so many babies, brought in so many mothers to care and change that it absolutely makes it a, a, a mute point. What are we doing to destroy a wicked foster care system by creating a system where we as the churches are coming together to adopt children What are we doing to care for the orphan in war-ravaged countries? What are we doing to, to remove poverty? Not because of the needs, but because of the souls attached to them. What are we doing to be the greatest force for good the world's ever seen because we're tied to Christ? What are we doing to preach the gospel nonstop and to live it out? Are we proclaiming jubilee and are we living it? Is that our mission, church? Because we're anointed with the same Spirit. We are an extension of Christ. What are we doing? Is that our mission? Is it your mission? What can you do to impact the world today for Christ? Stop with the excuses. Everything we have is all because of Him anyways. Every resource, every dollar, every breath, it's all from Him. From Him, to Him, and through Him. It's all His. What are you doing with it? You won't take it with you when you die. But you will meet the Lord of glory. And I will not want to stand and say, God, I'm sorry, I was complacent. It's too busy. I had to protect my investments. He is our investment. He is everything I have in my account. He's everything I have in my heart. He's everything I have in my home. 
He is Jubilee. Why don't you go give it to the world? Because he brought it to the world. Jesus Christ has come to bring the promised eternal Jubilee for all peoples who will believe upon him. And in spite of human rejection and rebellion, he will be unstoppable in doing so, even in us and through us. Let's go be his Jubilee people. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. We pray that you will move upon us in a mighty way. God, pour your spirit upon us. God, help us be those who live in light of the liberty we've received in Christ. That we have not been saved and freed for the flesh, but freed to serve, to serve you, to live for you in every way. God, shake off all of our complacency, all of our contempt that has come with familiarity. Turn the table on our expectations. Crush our preferences where they don't align with you. God, align our ways with your ways, our wills with your will. God, make your mission our mission. Burn it upon our heart. Stamp it upon our eyes. Fill our soul. God, fill every sinew, every synapse, every fiber of our being with your glory. Move us in ways unimaginable to go and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor to the world. To go live and preach jubilee to all. Not for the sake of needs, but for the sake of souls. So God, help us be your people. Help us be those who reflect Christ in all we do. Help us live in the liberty of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. In your precious and holy name we pray. Amen.